You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. Message today is called Time is Short. Time is Short. That's what we're going to talk about. I don't know if any of you, you, there may be some of you live in caves and don't know, but have you ever heard of Tom Brady? Is that a name you recognize? So he's kind of known as this, uh, this master of the two-minute drill. And so what we see a lot of times from him, but it's not just him, it's, it's teams from junior high up that what they do is they learn something about the two-minute drill. They know it's the end of, of the game. It's very important. Sometimes the game is going to swing on how well they manage that last two minutes. And so what you see them do is you see them, they move to quick huddles. They spike the ball to stop the clock. They throw incomplete passes sometimes that stops the clock. They run out of bounds. They're, they're measuring everything they do to try to move up the field, to have a successful conclusion. But the reality is they know that time is short. But if you watch this process unfold, and we have coaches and people that help with young people, they, they understand it well. If you watch this process, it's really a science when you think about how much they can squeeze into in a football game or a basketball game the very last minutes of that, of that play. So today what we're going to talk about is a similar thing. And if, you're in, if you have your version app, you can follow along with me or if you're at home. But what we're going to talk about, in fact, in Jesus' life, that's where we find him right now. He is in this proverbial two-minute drill of his formal ministry. He didn't have much time left, and he knows it, and he knows the end is at hand for him as far as being able to maximize what he had to talk about and to teach and to heal, and he had a minimum of time to do it before he knew that he would face the consequences of that, of that death and that horrendous time of uh, crucifixion and how that would face him. Jesus was dogged by critics. That's probably no secret to you, but throughout his whole ministry, he was dogged by critics. People that came along in his formal three-year ministry, and they were always like him. It kind, of, it kind of reminds me of like these little yippy dogs that are always biting at your heels. There was always somebody in the audience that was watching him and, and, and being a critic of what he was trying to do. So as we get to it, I want to get to just a little bit of the background. We're going to pick it up in Luke 20 at verse 27. All right? Luke 20, verse 27. Let me pray for us as we start. Father, we, we come today because what you do, when we look at Scripture, we get these glimpses of our Savior. We get these glimpses of the things that were important to him and how we're supposed to conduct our life, how we're supposed to treat other people, something about our faith. Lord, and help us today as we unpack this, that it isn't just some additional teachings and some additional history lessons, but he, he actually unfolds his word, God's word to us, as we do this through David, or through uh, Luke. I'll get it right. Father, you know my heart. Just, just be with us now as we spend this next few minutes in Jesus' name. And we are going to talk about David a little bit today too. So. so the Sadducees are going to be people we're going to talk about here briefly. The Sadducees 
did not believe in the resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but every once in a while they'll be talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the different C's, and I kind of get them confused. Well, here's how I keep track of who a Sadducee is. The Sadducees did not believe in the res resurrection, so they were so sad you see. Okay, you got that? Put that in your brain. That's how you'll be able to tell. But the resurrection itself, they did not believe in the resurrection. They also didn't believe in the traditions that were passed down orally. So when you think about the prophets and the people that came after them, they kind of shoved that all to the side. They were, they were aware of it because it was Jewish history. But they shoved a lot of that information to the side because they, they relied on the first five books of the Bible. That's what they relied on was only the written law. And see, their disbelief for the resurrection, if you will, it flies in the face of what Jesus was talking about. It flies in the face of what we believe as Christians. Because the one thing that you hear repeatedly from up here, if there was no resurrection, there would be no Christianity. There would be no reason to be here. And so that's what he's going to talk about today. Now, like so many other things, people, when they come to talk about our faith, a lot of times what they do is they throw out these questions to us. You know, and they're the kind of questions that, that their idea is to challenge the things we believe. And so what the Sadducees are going to do in these first few verses is they're going to do the same thing when it comes to talking about the resurrection. Now, one of the things I find is interesting is this question we're going to read about in a minute, this question they couch in terms of the resurrection. And as I read that, I thought, that's weird. They don't even believe in it. But yet they're going to ask him this question about the resurrection. And I started to ask myself, well, why is it like that? Well, the reality is these critics, just like critics we have, you have critics at work, you have critics in the marketplace, you have critics just out on the street, critics in politics, whatever those things are. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to present this question to him and expose Jesus as a fraud. That was the goal. That was the goal as these critics were in the audience doing it. So join me at verse 27, chapter 20, and this is what it says. It said, Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. I would say they came to him with a loaded question, one with an agenda. This is what they asked him. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one was married a woman and, di and she died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died. They had no children. Finally, the woman died too. How then, at the resurrection, whose wife, talking about these seven men, whose wife will, be, will she be since the seven were married to her? I don't know about you, but when I read those kind of questions, it is things like we run into in the marketplace when somebody's talking about Christianity. Because what they do is they come up with this crazy, nonsensical question in a means to try to challenge your faith. And that's exactly what they did here. Now understand when what we're going to read here in just a minute, it says this, it said it asked who would be married to her out of those seven. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, and he said, 
that when that happens, that they will neither marry or be given in marriage. So he's really saying, you know, you're asking a question that on its face doesn't make any sense when you look at what, what we're talking about and what Scripture reveals to us. Now understand, this isn't a policy statement. There would be people that read this and say, well, that's a policy statement about marriage. Marriage isn't important these days. You know, we can move in, we can leave together, we can do all these kind of things because Scripture says, really, you know, marriage isn't kind of this forever kind of thing. But as, as much as the world would like to believe that precedent, even when you start at the time of Adam and Eve, we start to see that, that God laid down this model. He laid down a model of procreation, and it was a marriage-based process. That's what he laid down for us. But what he's saying, it, it is a reminder that the relationship in heaven, because when you think about that, okay, he's saying, okay, so when we're in heaven, you're asking me a question about who will be married to who, that's not the way it's going to work. But it is a reminder that in relationships, our, our, our relationships or heaven are going to be so much different because this is going to be such a great event that we can't in our own mind, when we, because what we do is we tend to think about things that are relative to our experience, right? That's how we think about them. And what he's saying is, is he said, this is going to be a more glorious relationship than what you understand that to be here on earth. And see, oftentimes we'll hear, and I don't know if you all listen for these things, I do, but I hear people talk about the fact, well, you know, Bruce, he's passing away, and so I feel better because I know that he's gone to heaven, and he and Helen are reunited in their marriage. And I'm going to go, okay, it's not scriptural. So you think about those things, and, they, and as they talk about them, we'll talk about another one here in a minute, but as, as much as we think about the fact that that happens, it's really not so. When you go to the Gospel of John and Matthew, it really kind of tells the same story, and it talks about the, th the same thing, that we have marriage here on earth, but the relationship we're going to have in heaven is going to be completely different. It doesn't discount marriage here on earth. But what it tells you is this glorious event that, again, we can't even hardly fathom. Let's pick it up in verse 36. And they can, they can no longer, he goes on talking, he said, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. Now, again, listen to what he's saying. He said they are like the angels. He didn't say they are angels. So that's another thing you hear a lot of times. And, you know, a lot of it's not worth worrying about and arguing about with people, especially if they're in a tough time of life, maybe ahead of loss. But Scripture does not tell us that we go to heaven and we become angels. But what he's talking about, he's talking about this, this perpetual life, this everlasting life that angels will have and that we'll have. He said that they'll no longer die, for they will be like angels. They're God's children. They're his heirs since they are the children of the resurrection. In other words, you know, these, are the, these people are raised to an everlasting life, and so as a result of that, they're God's children. But in the account of the burning bush, Exodus 3, even Moses showed us that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of living, for to him they are all alive. That's a key part of what we're talking about today. It says this, he is not the God of the dead. And that's a big deal, because as we talk about resurrection, it's important that we understand that. So using scripture, the Sadducees 
could relate to what what he's going to do is he's 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 gone back and he's reached back into scripture back into the torah back into those five chapter or those five books that that they would understand because believe me they knew them frontwards and backwards and they understood and they knew exodus and they remembered what he had told them about that god was the the, he was the Lord of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that they still lived. So he's using that to point out the issue. So he was pointing out that they're alive. They're examples of the res resurrection that even you Sadducees have to understand. He was pointing out to the believers that people don't die to obscurity if you're a believer. And see, that's something that the Sadducees didn't quite understand. Because Jesus was pointing out to them that by the fact that he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that are alive, that they're examples of the resurrection to the Sadducees and that they don't die to obscurity. We don't just go off, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, but that's not what they saw. Now, different religions look at death in a different way or even the possibility of being saved. There are some that when you pass away from this earth, that then also all reincarnation takes place. And that you, if you die and you're a good person, you like come back as something else. I don't know. If I were going to do this, I think I'd want my pick of what I was going to come back at. I don't think I'd want to come back as a cow. But in, in reincarnation, there, there, there are some faiths that believe that you actually come back in some other form. I was thinking about the fact there, there are people that when they read the scripture about the 144,000, that they talk about the fact, I'm just thinking, okay, so what we do is we jam-pack Razorback Stadium and then we close the gates and say, I'm sorry, but if you're not in here already, you can't be saved. So a lot of people have a lot of different ideas as did the Sadducees, because the Sadducees, what they believed is that, that once you died, whether you were moral or not moral, you just went to this place of darkness, to what yet would be yet discovered about what would happen to them but they went to a place of darkness. Terrible thought when we think about the resurrection and think what separates us from other faiths in this thought about the resurrection and our hope in Jesus. In verse 39, it says, that some of the teachers of the law responded. They said, well, teacher, or well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him more questions. Here's a great piece of wisdom. If you're arguing with somebody that is wiser and smarter than you, it's a really good time to stop debating. And that's really the position they were in. Because he had answers for them. I mean, he, he didn't, they didn't sneak up on him. They didn't catch him in any kind of fraud. But they also didn't see him as the Messiah either. Then I like what Jesus did. You know, they've kind of questioned him about, well, here's this man, and he's got seven people, and they, who are they going to be married to? And I like the way he said it. I, this is kind of me adding this little part but I can almost imagine him saying this. Oh, by the way, I have a question for you. And we pick it up in verse 41. He said this, Then Jesus said to them, he said, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, and he's quoting from Psalms 110, the first verse. He says this, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, God the Son, he said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. 
David calls him Lord. How then, this is a question he's asking back to him, David calls him Lord. How then can he also be David's son? And so it kind of reminded me of the old Batman thing, you know, riddle me this. How does that happen? And so he goes on, and, and the things that we know are that in Revelations, in the 22nd chapter, it tells us, it says that David is, that, that Jesus is actually the root of David, but he's also the offspring of David. So what he's saying is, is that Jesus came, when you go back and you think about, you know, where Jesus came from, his mother, and if you follow that lineage, that's from what they call the line or the ancestry of David. But he also, we understand, we know that he was the root. He was there before that. In Matthew and Mark, we know that David acknowledged the Messiah as Lord. You know, we heard him even call him that in this situation. And he made the, he made the statement in Matthew and Mark that the Messiah, the Lord, was greater than he. In Acts in the second chapter, Peter talks about David's prophecy, and David prophesied the fact, he said, he said that the ascension and the deity of Jesus and the coming Messiah, he talked about the fact that that's who Jesus was and that there was this ascension that would take place and that this coming Messiah was a, de a deity. He was, in fact, God and man. Jesus continued by using Scripture to claim who he was as a Messiah even though they didn't really want to hear that. And you know, we live in a society that people don't want to hear it either. You know, they want what the world wants because that's comfortable, that feels good, that's my choice, that's my opinion, I can do things that satisfy me. But see, holding back didn't seem to be a strong suit for Jesus. Although some of the teachers and them would have probably still be in the crowd, what he decided he he decided to use this as a time, probably after feeling this questions and hearing kind of the tone of the way they were asked to him, that he decided to deliver this stern warning to his followers and disciples, and sure us sitting in here because we believe God's word's alive. It's it's necessary for today, but this is he's going to talk about the fact that as followers. We should not be duped by people's fancy clothes and their lofty positions, maybe their titles, or how society honors them. You'll remember in Scripture where it talks in another place that, you know, where people would come in and they would say, here, and move, move somebody that was less worthy out of the way and say, here, why don't you sit here? This is the best place in the house for you. We're going to give you the best seat because you're that important person. But see, timidness again wasn't Jesus' style. And this is what he says in these last few verses as we close our scripture reading. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour, widows, they devour widows' houses and they showed, make a show of their lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. You can kind of think about probably people in your network, you know, that are kind of like that. I think about maybe it's not the most appropriate place in a church setting, 
but the one that always that always reminds me is this and I really kind of think this is how a lot of politicians end up but you know if you if you ever watch that old series Cheers you know there was a guy who would come into this basement bar that was there and when he would come in everybody would say Norm they would always recognize him and I think that's what drives a lot of this is, is this the personal recognition, that feeling of power, of, of being significant, the things that people do. But he's telling us, he said, that isn't what you're to pursue. That's not what you're to be about. And he said, beware of people who want, who want, who wear these, the flowing robes and things as he described them of that day, but we have the same concern. So let me, let me just close with a few summary thoughts, statements about the things we've talked about today, because you know, as I went through this and studied it for today, I thought it seems like it's kind of disjointed. I mean, you've got this piece and this piece and this piece, and so you, if you're a speaker, you're trying to figure out how do you package that, how do you put that together? So let me try to do that for you just briefly. So whether you are Sadducee or not, there has been and there will be a resurrection, yours included. We know there's been resurrections in the past. Scripture tells us that. But there'll be a as, a as a believer, there'll be a resurrection for me and you as a believer. And Scripture tells us that the, we don't have to have flowing robes. We don't have to be fancy talkers. We don't, we don't have to hold a doctorate. But what we have to do is we have to believe in our heart with sincerity. And we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. So we know that the, what the Sadducees didn't get, we get. That, the, that that is available, this resurrection is available to us by just believing and confessing. The second thing is this, irrespective of the fact that uh, marriage is for here on earth, we look forward to this relationship. And it struck me that, that you know, if you're, if you're blessed to have a good solid marriage and a marriage that just brings you joy, you kind of think, well, you know, this is a wonderful thing, but what he's, he's saying, you won't really get all this, but he's, let me assure you that when you get to heaven, th these relationships you're going to have are going to be beyond our earthly imagination, how wonderful these relationships we're going to have together with each other are. The third thing was that Jesus was from the line of David, he tells us that in scripture m multiple times, but he said that the Messiah who was promised... And scripture, we know the Messiah was prophesied, as did David prophesy about that. But not only was it promised, but we know in scripture, and in a very few days after this, of these events we're reading about, we'll understand that it was fulfilled by Jesus. The fourth thing is this, and it's be very careful who you have in your ear. That's the last thing he talked about, in my opinion. And young people especially, not that us older ones can't listen, but young people especially, pay attention to that because what he's saying is be careful who you have in your ear because a lot of times when we're young people, we see other, other young people and we think, man, they really got it going on or whatever the phrase should be today. I'm out of date. I get it. But we may think that, that you know, they just, they just have it going on. I mean, gosh, they're popular and everybody knows their name, Norm, and whatever the things are. But the reality is that a lot of those people that you might think really have it going on, they don't have it going on. Not when it comes to the critical things, the important things in life. 
And even as adults, we have to be careful who we're influenced by. And that's what Jesus warns us in these last verses. I was thinking about, um, you got small children, and you know they're in this group of adults. And I was thinking about how many times I've seen kids, they're just kind of doing their own thing, and they're paying attention, they're in this, this mountain of trees, these big adults all the way around them. And one of the adults will start to, to leave, and they'll grab their hand and start to go with them. And then they look at them and go, wait, this isn't my mom, this isn't my dad. But see, that's what happens to us if we're not careful. We, we get attracted to things of the world and people that seem to have it going on. Maybe they're in a, a powerful position. You know, maybe they're well-dressed, well-spoken, well-educated, whatever those things are. But too often what we do is we let the wrong people, you listening, young people? We let the wrong people get in our ear and then we wake up and we're in a fix. We wake up because what we've done is, just like the child, we followed them down a path. Oftentimes it has consequences only to find out that, wow, <laughs> that was the wrong path. I let the wrong people get in my ear. The prophet Samuel said it well when he said, God looks at, on a man's heart, not like men who look at outward appearances. Let me read that to you again. God looks on a man's heart, not on their outward appearances. Folks, whether we're young and old, we need to look at a person's heart when we form alliances. Boy, it's easy if we don't do that to, to wake up and, and find out that we're off course, that we've connected to the wrong person, we've connected to the wrong company in our business, you know, I'll talk to a lot of young people that are looking for work and some even in middle age and and one of the things I always tell them without, you know, as they're going through that, I, I said, well, first be concerned with the culture of the company that you're thinking about joining, how important it is. First be concerned with the culture of the company you're joining. Why? Because you need to find out if their values are such that they line up with your personal values, with your Christian values. And that's the same thing we have to do, whether it's a relationship as a friend, whatever it is, we have to be very concerned about looking at the person's heart. So think with me as we close right now. Think about this. We started talking about the two-minute warning. And when they get that two-minute warning and they have the timeout and they come back on the field, and now they're in this full court press to try to get as much done as they can in a short period of time. I wonder in your life, and let's say the two-minute warning isn't two minutes. It might be 20 minutes. It might be 20 years. It may be longer. But the reality, with whatever time you have left, are you determined that for Christ you want to finish strong? Is that what you want to do? Is that what's important to you? Is it more important to you than things and stuff that we finish strong, that when we execute that two-minute warning of our life, that what we do is we, we, we think about the things we want to say and the things we want to do and how we want to treat people about the relationships we have, maybe making amends in certain circumstances, whatever those things are. But then we start that push. And oftentimes people wait for that push because they wait sometimes. Sometimes they never get it said. But sometimes it's on their deathbed and they're trying to figure out how to go back and resolve hurts and circumstances and family issues and whatever those things are. 
But I'm telling you what we need to do is we need to think about not waiting. We don't need to wait until we're in the final two-minute warning and that two-minute period of life. We have valuable time to use in nurturing our family and nurturing our relationships and nurturing our friends, but most importantly, have a solid relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what you build the foundation on. He is the cornerstone. We don't have to wait. Bow your heads with me as the praise team comes back. Father, we do pray that uh, as we close today, you've talked about a lot of things as we tried to understand the heart of Jesus' teaching and how it relates to us personally. And Father, I thank you so much that you've, that you've exposed those things. I hope that for those listening today, whether they're online or here, Father, that, that truly uh, you, some of the scales fall off of our eyes and realize that I don't want to just kind of wander through life. I don't want to do that. I want to do things that, that count. I want, to, I want to build alliances and relationships that are based on truth and are based on love and based on forgiveness. The things, Lord, that you've taught us so faithfully in your scripture. And I pray, Lord, too, as we move into whatever these last two minutes of our time is, whether it's an extended period of time or a short time, Lord, I pray that truly that we'll ask the Lord to be our Savior, that we'll treat him that way, and that we'll realize, Lord, that what you want for us is you want us each day to grow more and more like you. That should be our goal, Father. Just pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonte Boulevard in Tontytown, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God, love others, and serve both.